From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we speak with the legendary Jim Hightower about the role of progressive politics in the 2016 presidential campaign. And Ken Rose from the Center for Death Penalty Litigation will join me to discuss how the death penalty, once the apex of North Carolina's tough on crime policies, has now seen its support waning. That's next on The Public Morality. Now that the 2016 presidential primary season is underway, I thought I would check in with one of those individuals for whom I have great respect for their wisdom, intellect, and passion. It is none other than that reformed politician-turned-committed commentator, author, and progressive political activist, Jim Hightower. As I have said before, talking with Jim Hightower is a cross between having a discussion with William Jennings Bryant and Will Rogers. It is indeed an honor to have him once again on The Public Morality. Jim Hightower, welcome to The Public Morality. Hey, Byron. Great to be with you and all those WSNCers out there tuning in. Thank you. It's good to have you back, my friend. Um, you know, you, you self-describe as a reformed politician. But when I look out on the campaign trail, I look at Jim Hightower and seem like some of those um, uh, political bona fides of campaigning, uh, you haven't forgotten those because you're out there quite a bit for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> am I right? <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've tried to take the cure, uh, which I've been able to do to the extent uh, that, that I'm uh, uh, free from running uh, for office myself. But I'm, I'm an enthusiastic supporter of progressives around the country who are willing to stand up. And most recently, I've been doing that with Bernie Sanders, uh, traveling uh, in Iowa and Nevada here in Texas uh, and elsewhere uh, to try to put a guy uh, in the White House who actually uh, stands for ordinary folks and not only for the people, for, say, workers or for consumers, for environmentalists, uh, for uh, poor folks, but uh, willing to stand against the powers of be that are running roughshod over workers and the poor folks and uh, the middle class and the rest of us. Well, you know, I, um, I watched you recently um, introduce um, Senator Sanders in, in Austin. Yes. And... Um, and the crowd, not just the crowd given its size, but its enthusiasm, had you not prefaced your introduction by saying that you were in South Austin, um, I would have thought you were in Berkeley or a liberal arts college on the East Coast. But, but what's occurring in Texas now, for those of us who don't live in Texas, uh, we might assume, and I'm, I'm going to digress uh, here for a moment. If you remember Richard Nixon when he ran in 1950, uh, against uh, Helen uh, Gahagan Douglas, he said that she was right. pink down to her underwear. Well, what, what we think Texas is is uh, is, red, is a red state right down to its underwear. So, so that enthusiasm, that crowd, doesn't look like the Texas that most of us know. So, what's going on? Well, what's uh, going on, uh, Byron, is uh, that red states and red districts uh, are uh, actually have uh, plenty of blue within them. Uh, but what's happened is we've not had candidates uh, in recent times who have stood up unequivocally for uh, working families, 
uh, and the environment uh, and the kind of uh, issues that uh, that regular folks uh, care about. Uh, so it, it's not that here in Texas, for example, our state has turned Republican or turned right wing. It's that it's turned into a non-voting state. Uh, we had the lowest voter turnout in 2014 of any state in the country. We had 28 percent of the people vote uh, because Democrats were not standing up uh saying the kind of things that would make uh, a working stiff uh, want to even go vote. They don't hear themselves being uh, talked about, being appealed to uh, in our elections. Uh, so when a candidate finally does step forward, in this case Bernie Sanders, uh, people turn out in a rush. Uh, we, we had we had only 17 hours uh, notice that, he, that Bernie was coming uh, here to Austin, uh, and more than 10,000 people turned out. Uh, nonetheless. Uh, so it just shows that there is a hunger uh, out there. And this same thing has happened around the country, not just for Bernie Sanders, but for candidates who do stand up uh, in, in local or state races uh, and, uh, and attract that kind of enthusiasm, that commitment to try to, you know, not take America back. That's what the Tea Party has done. They've taken us back about 100 years so far. But rather to move America forward. Uh, that's what people want. They want to be a part of building uh, this country uh, and uh, you know, and, and build around those fundamental values of economic fairness, social justice, equal opportunity for all people. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, your, the last piece where you just stated there, you consider those like the core values, right? Like I heard you saw you talked about those, um, but why do you think that those core core values, the way you just articulated them, um, um, are not widespread throughout our, our political discourse? Uh, well, because uh, the political discourse has been uh, muted uh, by money, uh, and when you're Taking those corporate checks, uh, I can tell you as one who's been in Texas politics, uh, that written on the back of it is the corporate agenda. Uh, and that corporate agenda has no interest in economic fairness and social justice and equal opportunity for all people. It's all about me, <laughs> uh, the, the CEOs, uh, the elites. Uh, the makers, as they call themselves, versus the takers. You know, so they're they're quite snobbish uh, about it. And there's so much money uh, in our politics today, uh, in, including within uh, my party, uh, the Democratic Party, uh, that we we quit having uh, these discussions. And that's the importance of, of what uh, what Bernie has already done. Uh, if you'll notice uh, that Hillary Clinton suddenly is uh, is lately. Uh, Essentially, giving Bernie speech, <laughs> she's she's feeling uh, the the temperature. You know, politicians don't feel the light until they feel the heat, right. uh, and <laughs> and the, the the heat is uh, that uh, folks on the Republican side as well, the the anti-establishment, Donnie Trump, who you would think of as the establishment, uh, but that that party has become so you know farther out than Pluto that uh, uh, that. Donnie Trump is considered a populist on that <laughs> side, uh, and uh, and on our side, uh, you know, we we've got uh, a Bernie uh, out there just saying that, that the wealth and income, uh, uh, education, racial, uh, you know, et cetera, inequality in our country uh, is destroying our democracy and is holding back the enormous potential of this uh, uh, historically wealthy uh, nation. Uh, and that we can all be better if we all get better. Uh, and so 
once you offer that uh, with a political lever attached to it, people are going to come to it. You know, not necessarily in one election. I mean, uh, but but that we've got something going finally that's going to continue going, building a movement, whether Bernie's in the White House or not, uh, that building that movement that will elect uh, local candidates and congressional candidates and uh, begin to uh, to build a, a, a people's democracy again. Well, you know, you, you, you touched on something that, I, that I, I wanted to follow up on, and I'll do it right now. Do you think, um, and I understand the, the importance of presidential election, but for for the outcomes you just articulated, do, do you believe that perhaps too much is spent on presidential elections and not enough on other elections? I don't just mean the midterms. I mean state representatives and city councils. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is, mm-hmm. is that part of the problem? Absolutely. Uh, because at that level, you know, people are active. Uh, they're, they're, well, you got the, the Moral Monday uh, movement right there in North Carolina uh, that, you know, sprang um, – sort of almost spontaneous combustion uh, because of the extreme right-wingism uh, that that our own state government here uh, in Texas practices uh, and that you're experiencing uh, there in North Carolina. So, you know, the, even a dog knows the difference between being stumbled over and being kicked. <laughs> and, and most people now know, you know, we're being kicked uh, by those power elites, by Wall, Wall Street and the corporate chieftains uh, and the, the runaway corporations uh, abandoning not only workers and communities, but America itself uh, in order to get just another dollar, you know. Uh, so folks are fed up with that. And the way to build that back uh, is to, you know, it's it's very positive that we have a Bernie Sanders campaigning for president uh, to put that message out there in a forceful way. But it's only going to work, as he says plainly, if other people are getting elected, too. Uh, he says, that, you know, I, I, I can't defeat Wall Street, even if I'm president of the United States, unless I can bring the people inside uh, and people coming inside uh, through uh, direct uh, political action and engagement, in other words, not just campaigning, but governing, uh, but also uh, people running uh, for local offices and then state offices and building up a, a thorough governing movement that is uh, thoroughly progressive. Do you think, in your view, have we reached that, you know, remember the movie Network, I'm as mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. Are we there yet? Um, because we've known for decades you know, this economic data, we know the in- inverse doesn't work. And yet the core values that you uh, articulate uh, for in some corridors, you might as well s- be speaking them in Russian or Swahili. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I do think we're we're almost there. I, I would put it like that. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders has not created his campaign. Uh, the conditions of the people, the times have created his campaign. Uh, I, I've known Bernie a long time, and uh, when when he first began to go around to see if maybe this would work, uh, he wasn't sure, and I was not sure, whether this message uh, would resonate uh, the way it has. Uh, so the response he's getting is an indication that we're we are moving well along uh, toward that day uh, when uh, there is a critical mass of people who are ready. Uh, literally to take over the government uh, and to bring it back uh, to ordinary folks. So, uh, yeah, I, I think we're we're getting close, and I think this campaign uh, is taking us even further uh, down that path. Uh, 
Uh, and that's a very, very hopeful sign. But again, it's, it's just the start. It, it's, not, uh, it's not the end of it. Well, the strategy has always been, um, in any type of populist efforts, the strategy has been, well, we'll just ride this out until they, until they subside, and then when they're no longer angry, then we'll move along as business as usual. And, and I'm hearing you say that there's at least the possibility of this might be something different. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, one, they, they've just they, they've overreached. They being the the, the power elites, economic, financial, and uh, political power elites, have knocked down too many people. You know, with poor people, uh, our 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 country, our government, our corporations, uh, they've been very expert at holding down poor people. Uh, but now they've knocked down the middle class. Uh, since the, uh, well, for the last 30 years they've been working on it, but uh, since Ronald Reagan, you know, we've gone in 30 years from Ronald Reagan's uh, trickle-down economics to the Koch brothers' uh, tinkle-down economics. And don't, don't, and, don't forget uh, uh, Donald Trump's size of his hands. We, we're there, too. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, this, this level of uh, political dialogue is uh, quite stimulating. <laughs> anyway, but uh, so, so, you know, a uh, Again, there's, you know, it, it's not only that they've knocked down the middle class, but they've knocked down that, that notion of equal opportunity for all people. Uh, it, it's one thing to have inequality. America is fairly tolerant of, uh, of a level of inequality, but it has now become, you know, not just a gap, but a chasm. Uh, and more importantly, the possibility of our children to do better uh, is disappearing. Uh, and for, I dare say, close to a majority of the people has disappeared. Uh, it's not going to be better for their children. And that that uh, it creates a, a, a revolutionary fervor uh, among folks. Uh, again, there's a point beyond which uh, you're, you're not just uh, being stumbled over by the power elites, but you're being kicked. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, let me just be, uh, put my cynical hat on for just a moment. Y- you know, so much of the discourse sort of holds um, Senator Sanders and Donald Trump a, a, as the polar opposites, as if, you know, building a wall or keeping Muslims from entering the country is the equivalent on the left of advocating for Medicare for all. Yeah. How do we break through that? <laughs> yeah. uh, by breaking through it, uh, by doing what Sanders is doing and, uh, and what ordinary folks uh, who are who have created his campaign are doing and uh, what people are are, are pushing uh, in in terms of uh, uh, this race the, 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 the real the real difference in, in the two parties or the real difference between Sanders and Trump is that Trump says uh, you, you have a right to be angry uh, so look down at all those uh, little people. Uh, who are who are coming? Uh, who are Muslim uh, uh, refugees? Uh, look down at the uh, Central American and Mexican American people coming across our border. Those children. Uh, we can't have that. Whereas Sanders says, "Look up. That's where the power is. Uh, they're the ones who are doing that." Uh, and we have to have a movement that brings people uh, together uh, to. Uh, democratize uh, the, the power in our country so that your life can be better without making someone else's life worse. You know, um, so I'm going to take it. I'm going uh, to the 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 last question that you're slightly that you're slightly hopeful that the the electorate will not gravitate downward 
is uh, uh, more so than it will gravitate upward because that I mean I, that's how you have changed because if you gravitate downward then you accept that at least I'm not as bad off as this guy or this guy's my the reason that I'm uh, suffering right now but if you're looking upward then you're going to whoever are the nominees won't you force them to rise up as well yes uh, I, I I do think so, and and I think the electorate will continue to to build and move in this direction uh, if we continue to organize that uh, and continue to offer that by recruiting more candidates. People have to have a way of expressing uh, that sentiment of fairness and justice and opportunity for all. Uh, and the way we do it uh, peacefully is, is through elections. Uh, but elections have to have real campaigns. <laughs> And that campaign has to be based on those ideas, uh, forcefully expressed and specifically expressed. Uh, and if we do that, uh, then, yeah, uh, people will not just drift away. Because what, what the powers that, as you indicated, uh, what, uh, what the powers that be are counting on is that, well, maybe this isn't going to be the greatest election for us, but, uh, but the people will grow tired of it and we, we'll give them some other kind of television shows or sporting events or something and distract them uh, from this, or we'll scare them uh, with uh, terrorism and that sort of thing. Uh, and and they, it'll all just go away. Uh, and people will not necessarily agree with us, but they will they will drop out of uh, political activity, and that's what they hope hope for. Uh, well, that's up to us. You know, we've we've got to start this year uh, in a in, in a stronger way than normal with Bernie Sanders' campaign. But uh, but is again, Bernie's Bernie's not the answer, as he says. Uh, uh, we've got to have more of like uh, Reverend Barber and the uh, and the Moral Monday uh, kind of movement. Uh, that not only constantly stays on point, uh, but moves the discussion not not just around issues, but around fundamental questions of morality, right and wrong. That's that's the issue in our country, and so much of what the powers that be are doing is just simply wrong. Well, you know, listening to you, you remind me of um, George Bernard Shaw, who says that democracy is a device that ensures the people are governed no better than they deserve. I, I certainly hope we're governed better than the, than the size of our president's hands. I'm with you. <laughs> thank you, Byron. Well, Jim, Jim Hightower, I want to thank you for once again being on the public morality. I'm sure we will talk again, my friend. Anytime. Thank you, Byron, for thank what you're doing. That was political commentator and activist Jim Hightower. Stay tuned as we talk with Ken Rose from the Center for Death Penalty Litigation as we discuss the death penalty in North Carolina. Not that long ago, to imagine decline in public support for the death penalty would have been unthinkable. But today, more and more people, more and more states, regardless of political ideology, are coming to the conclusion that capital punishment does not work. It is an ineffectual policy that is also costly to taxpayers. What was once the pinnacle of tough-on-crime public policy no longer carries the same weight. To discuss the trajectory of the death penalty in North Carolina is Ken Rose. Rose is a senior staff attorney at the Center for Death Penalty Litigation who has litigated numerous death penalty cases over his illustrious career spanning over 32 years. You recently wrote an op-ed where you stated that there's been this seismic shift in the direction of the death penalty, specifically in North Carolina. What exactly did you mean by that? 
there have been in North, North Carolina in 2015 no new death sentences in, two th- in that year. There were only four capital prosecutions that went to trials, and of those, only one completed a capital trial. No one was sentenced to death. Um, there were only seven new death sentences in North Carolina in the past five years, and we are approaching 10 years with no executions in this state. This makes us one of a majority of the United States states that have, a, that have abandoned the death penalty in, either in law or in practice. So, in fact, with no executions, no new people being sentenced to death, the, the death penalty is effective in name only. Um, that's, that's quite a shift. I think you, in, in your, uh, your op-ed you cited, uh, you went back to, say, 90, 1995, and that was a quite a big shift from the numbers you just gave. Am I correct? Yeah, you are. You know, we, we were one of the leaders, if not the leader, in numbers of persons sentenced to death in the country. Um, we were sentencing in the 1990s 50% more people to death than the state of Texas. Um, so it is a huge shift for, for our state to go from an average of over 20 death sentences a year during, during the 1990s to an average of, of two new death sentences over the past 10 years. We've, we've cut our death sentences by 95%, and, and last year no one was sentenced to death. So I, I think by anyone's calculations, including prosecutors who are not bringing these cases, um, not prosecuting them for death in the way they used to be, um, there has been a huge shift. And I think there is also an argument that it's, it's um, served its purpose if you think it had a purpose, but it's no longer an, a, an effective um, punishment for crime. Do, do you see uh, the state of North Carolina uh, going from – uh, I guess it's fair to say a de facto moratorium on the death penalty to actually um, abolishing it. Is that a possibility on the horizon? Yeah, I, I see more and more policymakers. And, and um, for example, um, in 2015, Representative Hardister of Guilford County, who is a conservative Republican, um, actually uh, came out and said he, he thinks that the death penalty should be abolished. There was a prosecutor from Winston-Salem uh, who, who was responsible for prosecuting five persons um, on death row. Um, his name is Vince Rabel, who says that the death penalty is, is no longer feasible and should be abolished. So we're seeing not just persons who are morally opposed to the death penalty say that, that we shouldn't have it, but we're seeing people who actually supported it, who believed in it, who prosecuted it, and yet now say that it, that it doesn't work. Tell us, uh, who's Henry McCollum? Henry McCollum was a, um, is a person that was on death row um, from 1983 um, for 30 years in North Carolina's death row. He uh, and his brother, Leon Brown, were sentenced to death um, in 1983 for a crime they did not commit. Uh, they were both wrongly prosecuted um, based on false confessions that they gave to prosecutors in Robinson County, North Carolina. Um, in, in 2014, a Superior Court judge found that they had been wrongfully prosecuted wrong, and that Henry, who had served 30 years on death row, had, had been wrongfully put on death row. And the, the judge exonerated both Mr. McCollum and Mr. Brown. And then the following year, 
the governor of the state, Governor McCrory, granted pardons of innocence to both men. And, and, and Governor McCrory has been on the record as being an advocate for capital punishment. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. And I, I, I think in, in the case of Mr. McCollum, Mr. Brown, he would not have granted a pardon of innocence unless there was absolute clear evidence that they were innocent. Um, in fact, that was that was his job to look at the cases, to look at the facts. He had the SBI do a new investigation, and he he concluded there was clear evidence they were innocent. Now, when and this is more of a hypothetical, sir, but when 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 someone talks about like a heinous crime has been committed, what's wrong with the argument that suggests that there are certain crimes for which the only remedy for justice is to demand that someone pay with their life? What what? what Tell us what's wrong with that argument. Well, I, first of all, it doesn't work. There, the, we have found over, with over 30 years of using the death penalty that we are, um, we are not using it in the worst of the worst cases. When we do use it, we often prosecute persons who, who may be innocent. I think that there's been a study recently that showed 4% of persons on death row are innocent. We have acquittals, like in the case of Mr. McCollum and Mr. Brown, where we have sentenced persons to death who are innocent. I represented a, a person by the name of Levon Jones who had spent 15 years on death row, and it was only because a federal judge um, had the courage to grant him a new trial that his, his charges and, and his death sentence were not carried out. He came within a few days of being executed. Um, so Mr. Jones um, and Mr. McCollum, innocent, on death row for over a decade, and if we want to continue with the death penalty and we want to um, prosecute terrible cases, and there are some terrible cases of persons who have committed murder and people on death row, but if we want to take the chance of executing innocent people, then we should continue um, pursuing death sentences. What, what I hear you saying is that if you um, support capital punishment, then there must be an error percentage in the administration that you must find some level of comfort with. Uh, that's exactly right. You, you have to be willing to take the chance that you're going to execute innocent people. We also did a study in, in, at Center for Death Penalty Litigation, where I worked last year, and looked at cases that are prosecuted for the death penalty and looked at the numbers of acquittals and the numbers of cases that were dismissed with prejudice, which means they were dismissed without any opportunity to bring back. And we found between 1989 and 2015, we found um, almost 60 cases of innocent people who were prosecuted, and yet the state sought the death penalty. And, and the concern is, you, most people think, well, we're only going to, the prosecutor's going to be very careful in these cases, and they're only going to prosecute cases where they're sure the person is guilty. And from our study, that just is not happening. What is happening is prosecutors are seeking death in cases sometimes with very weak evidence. And the reason they're doing it is because they want to make sure that they can get convictions, and they want to make sure that they have a punishment to force persons to, to agree to, to plea bargains. And, and the problem with that is sometimes those persons are going to be innocent. Um, we saw, in fact, there were three people that were exonerated by the Innocence Inquiry Commission in North Carolina, um, and two people, excuse me, Mr. Canganiero and Mr. Wilcoxon, both of whom pled guilty because they were, they were threatened with the death penalty. And it turns out after the, the investigation of the Innocence Inquiry Commission that both were innocent. Um. 
on that same thread, similar thread rather, can you provide a, a profile for who is most likely to receive the death penalty? Are there, are there any similarities? Yeah. Well, first of all, everyone on death penalty is poor. Uh, I, uh, everyone now is poor, and almost everyone who was prosecuted for the death penalty had no income and had no resources. Secondly, many and disproportionate number of persons of color are prosecuted for the death penalty. Persons who have committed crimes against white persons are prosecuted disproportionately compared to persons who have committed crimes against people of color. Um, the persons in certain counties in the state, and, and it's interesting to look at the, um, the assort, where persons are getting death sentence, but only in a few um, counties are there congregations of people who have gotten death sentences. So, for example, in Forsyth County, there's a large number of people on death row. But in about a third of the state, in a about a third of the counties in the state, there are no persons on death row. So it really has a lot to do with where you commit the crime, with your socioeconomic background, with your race and the race of the victim, and not as much to do with the, the, the crime that you've committed or, or your background or history. You, you make that sound um, almost like a lottery. Yeah, except it's a, it's a weighted lottery. Right. I, I think that's a fair point. I, I, I like, um, really liked when I was growing up reading the story by Shirley Jackson called, called The Lottery. And it's about a town where where people get, every year gather around, and there's a there's a name picked, and that person is killed in that town. And and the point about it is is that that would be a terrible that would be a horrible thing. But that's what those people in that town believe would keep them safe. Here we do something similar in the form of a death penalty, but it is weighted. It is weighted by race. It is weighted by geography and it's weighted by income. Uh, uh, do you have any data that uh, suggests uh, the, the perpetrators of these crimes uh, in terms of their mental health and their mental status? Yeah, I do. I, I, I can tell you that in North Carolina, um, we passed a statute in 2002 that prohibited the execution of persons with intellectual disabilities, or at that time we called it mental retardation, and since that time, over 16 people have been exonerated, not exonerated, but have been taken off death row because of intellectual disability. So the over 10% of the people on death row uh, in 2002 had intellectual dis disability. And, and from my experience and from, from what we've seen in terms of mental illness, and I mean severe mental illness, things like schizophrenia, bipolar disease, I would say that approximately 20 to 30 percent of the people on death row suffer from those serious mental illnesses. Talking here with Ken Rose uh, about the death penalty in, in North Carolina. So we're, we're essentially talking about a public policy that's primarily reserved for those on, on the margin. That's exactly right, and, and increasingly reserved for no one, because um, as, as we discussed last year, no one was sentenced to death, and in the last uh, four years, a total of four people have been sentenced to death. So it's it's this is a this is a sentence that's rejected not just by people who oppose the death penalty, but it's being rejected by jurors who be, who believe in the death penalty, but don't believe the cases that they're sitting on the person should be sentenced to death. And in fact, 
I would I would say that that when people say they believe in the death penalty, they're talking about it in the abstract. They're not talking about it in specifics because when they see the types of cases that are brought before them, they're rejecting it. I, I think back to um, Furman versus versus Georgia, and, and that sort of gave us, albeit temporarily, like a, a a de facto moratorium on capital punishment. Yes, sir. And then and then we had uh, was it Greg versus Georgia? We did. And, and and now that was that ruling was that capital punishment had to adhere to the ban on cruel and unusual punishment. Now, I'm obviously not a lawyer. Did I do a good? Is that is that a fair analysis? Sure. And then that same year, we had a, a case called Woodson versus North Carolina that said you couldn't sentence everyone who committed murder to the death penalty because that would be unfair because you. You wouldn't be considering their individual circumstances, like severe mental illness, like the fact that they're a juvenile, um, or many other factors that would suggest that they shouldn't be executed. So, in, in, in so since those cases, um, we're talking mid '70s for for, the, um, uh, for those latter cases. Have I mean, have we progressed even in the, in, in, in the in the laws, not just in North Carolina, but just across the country? Do you see any progress there? I, I do. I, I do, and I think that the the progress has been in categories of of defendants that the U.S. Supreme Court has said could not be executed. Um, and I'll give you a couple examples. The, the court has said that juveniles cannot be executed. We had several persons under the age of 18 on North Carolina's death row. The U.S. Supreme Court has said that persons with intellectual disabilities cannot be executed. We've had 16 people with intellectual disabilities on North Carolina's death row. court has said that you have to, um, you have to actually kill in order to get a death sentence. Um, you can't have committed a crime however heinous, such as rape, where no one has, has died. And North Carolina had no one on death row, but other states did. Um, Louisiana, for example, persons who never killed or, in, um, or intended to kill. Um, so in a lot of respects, we've narrowed the persons eligible for the death penalty. But yeah, I, th- I think even more important, that juries are just refusing to bring death sentences, and prosecutors are rarely bringing prosecutions for, for the death penalty. So in my, in my view, it, there's a combination of things that have really changed the, the, the momentum on the death penalty, and it's, it's a combination of the attitudes of, of citizens of our state, and it's also the rulings by the U.S. Supreme Court. Also, I, I would add another very important factor, and that is we've had um, several states that have actually abolished the death penalty. Um, in the last seven years, I think it's been um, I think it's been five states that have abolished the death penalty. So that's a that's a major factor, including Nebraska, which is a very conservative state that abolished it last year. You know, I was as you were as you were giving out those illustrations, I, I was thinking how nonsensical it would be if someone you know were to uh, some man were to rape a woman, and then the the punishment meted out would would be the, the 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 victim's family could rape a member of the other victim's of the perpetrator's family. Now that would that would just be nonsensical. We would we wouldn't tolerate that. But yet, why do you think the death penalty allows that type of uh, unrealistic thinking? Why is it the exception? I think um, that in parts of our country, there's a there's a sense of uh, morality that we're, that people feel that unless there's extreme violence 
in response to terrible, terrible crimes, that there's not justice. I think that that is um, ingrained in, in parts of our country. But I also think if you look at where the death sentences are, are really um, are really given, it's in the death belt. It's in the areas where there had been lynchings over the last century. It's where there's a a, a larger population of African Americans, and and in that sense, the death penalty has been racist. Um, and you know, southern states, Oklahoma, Texas, southern Missouri, those those are states that have um, used the death penalty. And we're in company um, internationally with countries. We're in company like Iran, Iraq. North Korea, China, those are the states, uh, the countries that are um, keeping the death penalty. But most of the countries in the world have decided they don't need it and, and that it's not a useful punishment. To your knowledge, has America executed an innocent person? I believe so. Yes, I believe so. And I think one example of that is Willingham in Texas. There's been a lot of written, written about his case, about an arson case, where the proof was um, later, later deemed not to be reliable science. Now, Willingham was, uh, is it Todd Willingham? Yes. Now, he was accused of having a fire that killed his children. Is that, is that? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, the forensic science that was used to convict him and sentence him to die and later to execute him um, has been rejected by many persons who are experts now in, in fire science in arson. So do you see a Supreme Court maybe going even further than Furman and just, and just abolishing, not in a de facto way, but just forthrightly abolishing capital punishment? Yeah. So the difference between uh, the time in Furman when the U.S. Supreme Court said um, struck down the statutes that allowed for the death penalty and now is that states are starting to to abolish it themselves. So the trend in the country is for abolition in legislatures. It's for juries um, refusing to return death sentences, for prosecutors making decisions not to seek death. And it's the polling shows that there's a, a fear-sized decline in the attitudes of persons in support of the death penalty. And when um, considerations like life without parole, which is the alternative in every state that has a death penalty um, and restitution are included. A majority of people reject the death, death penalty. Uh, and now I, I, I know that it doesn't um, titillate our sensibilities the same way, but uh, explain um, to our listeners in the, in, the, in the short time we have left why life without parole is a much better option than the death penalty. Yeah. Well, let me first say life without parole is a terrible, it's a very tough punishment, but it does certain things that, that many people, in fact, I think most people feel we need in our society, and that is a mechanism for, to ensure society, to ensure the public that persons who commit the worst crimes can never get out and can never commit those crimes again. And that, that punishment, life without the possibility of parole, serves that need in society. Um, it's not about retribution, but it's about individual deterrence. Um, so if we're worried about people getting out and killing people, a life without parole sentence serves that need. The, the death penalty, on the other hand, doesn't, it, it serves that same purpose, 
individual deterrence, but it does no better than life without possibility of parole. And in addition, it does not serve the purpose of, of general deterrence, and we've seen statistical studies that, that, uh, that do not show that the death penalty is a deterrent. Now, you, you, since you mentioned deterrence, I mean, that, that has long been one of the, um, I guess, stronger arguments uh, advocating for the death penalty, that it is, a, it is somehow a deterrent, maybe for the person who committed the crime, uh, but it, it has some social deterrent factors as well, and, and, you, and you pretty much debunked that claim. Again, it's not, I'm, it's not me saying that, but it's the National Academy of Sciences that have done a survey um, of, uh, of the tests, the, 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 the um, studies that have looked at deterrence, and, and their review of those studies say that death penalty has not been proven to be a deterrent. So, uh, fi- finally, um, as, as we, I, I, guess, I guess part of the frustration uh, for, for many people, so I'm assuming people on your side, is that to, to, to do the work you have done for as long as you've done it, 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 it could probably seem, I guess at times, frustrating. And, and I would imagine uh, in some cases um, heart-wrenching. But at the same time, um, the, the, you have seen change. And, you've, and, and there's, there's been, we've become a more enlightened country. I mean, against our own will sometimes. We- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, Byron. I think, um, we, uh, I think we have become more educated about the risk of executing innocent people. And it may be because there's so much on television and in our uh, social media that, that um, lets us know that that is a serious risk and that if we continue with the death penalty, we, we could easily execute more innocent people. Um, before I let you go, um, is there a, a website that our listeners can go to to um, learn more about the work that you're doing and, and why these issues are so important? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I, there's a great website in North Carolina. Um, it's called North Carolina Coalition for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. Um, it has issues about innocent persons who are on death row. It has issues about the study I, mis- I mentioned on trial for their lives, the hidden costs of wrongful capital prosecutions in North Carolina. And it has, um, it, it has detailed statistics about what's going on with the death penalty in North Carolina. But in, also in terms of a, a national resource, the best resource, I think, available to the public is the Death Penalty Information Center website which has won a lot of awards for, its, uh, for the depth of its information that it provides. So I would urge, I think that's dpic, dpic.org. Thank you. Ken Rose, I want to thank you for being on the public morality today. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. That was Ken Rose from the Center for Death Penalty Litigation. Coming up, my closing remarks. Next time on The Public Morality, we'll speak with economist Dean Baker, co-director of the Center for Economic Policy Research, about economic policy in the 2016 presidential campaign. And after that, Amy Traub, a fellow at the Demos Institute, will join us to discuss paid family leave. That's next time on The Public Morality. And now for my closing remarks. 
Whenever a Supreme Court nominee is confirmed to the court, replacing the recently deceased Antonin Scalia, I certainly hope it is an individual that diversifies the bench. The court, in its current configuration, is fairly diverse by the matrix commonly used to define diversity, which are race and gender. But the diversity quotient on the Supreme Court quickly wilts when one factors that all justices came from either Yale or Harvard Law Schools. Now, there obviously is nothing wrong with having individuals on the Supreme Court from arguably our two most prestigious law schools. But should it stop there? Presidents, Democrat and Republican alike, want and quite frankly must nominate someone with superior credentials. Does that mean, judging by the court's current makeup, it's fine to have women on the court as long as they come from the state of New York? This is not to suggest there is a conspiracy that presidents only consider Harvard-Yale-educated Catholics or Jews for the nation's highest court in the land, but that nevertheless is the existing outcome. It is an outcome that reflects a small slice of who and what America has become in the fledgling moments of the 21st century. While there may be differing perspectives on the court, they all stand at the same vantage point. Nominations to the Supreme Court since the failed submission of Robert Bork, which bequeathed the nation the verb borked, have become a reflexive process that places more emphasis on how a nominee will delicately answer the abortion litmus test questions than ensuring someone be added to the bench with not only solid legal acumen, but also in possession of a range of experiences that reflect the ever-changing nation. Prior to his appointment to the Supreme Court, Justice Anthony Kennedy taught constitutional law at the University of Pacific's McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, California. Are we to believe it is impossible that a graduate from McGeorge could sit on the highest court in the land? What's wrong with having a member of the court who also spent time as, say, a county sheriff? Constitutional interpretation is not simply reading and deciphering words in a document that was originally ratified in 1788. It is also having some appreciation for and struggling with how the elasticity of those words can maintain relevance in the 21st century. A wider swath of diversity on the court is needed to make the connection between judicial decisions and its effect on everyday Americans. And that path is not limited to a corridor that connects New Haven to Cambridge. Something to consider as we strive for the elusive, more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcasts, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.